Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Um, we've got some feedback from the community. Uh, they would like to know who we're actually talking to <laughs> before each episode. Just as a shout out, we do love feedback. One of the things we got was a lot of interest in the run up to Q4 and all the conversations we were having with other guests about what could happen. And now we are on the eve of Q4 starting. So we thought we would do a round table and bring in not one, but two guests, friends of both of ours that we've known for a while to discuss what exactly is happening on the ground and what we think Q4. And if we wanna look into Q1, what we see coming down the pike. And our guests are Sion Kang from Stepstone, previously Greenspring. She is someone I've co-invested with as an LP in early stage funds multiple times. They also do direct investing, so she can look with both sides, which is amazing. And then Ed Sim, who founded Bold Start, which is what they call a day one seed fund, focused on developer first, infra, and SaaS founders. So they are very focused, yet given his tenure in venture, I think his understanding is really deep. And he does a really phenomenal job, both online and in person, on explaining trends and why things happen. So we thought having the two of them would be cool. I'm also going to put you on the spot, Beezer. Ooh, fun. Get some of your Q4 predictions. Um, I expect a thing or two uh, in return. Uh, so oh. already I prepped a little bit. This is us trying to level up a little bit our pod game. Uh, Notice the microphone. <laughs> We focus on the guests, the quality of the conversation, and then you have to forgive us for everything else. <laughs> but hopefully we're going to get better there too. So Hopefully we're going to get better. Um, but I can tell you, I'm going to tell you, I am fired up for Q4. I wasn't as much given the Q3 and some of the data. And I have a kind of a contrarian take as to why I'm fired up about Q4. But I was listening to some other podcasts yesterday and today, and it kind of it really kind of got me my groove back on i think we're in the bottoming process and i think better things to come in 2024 2025 what i'm also doing research on and we will we'll publish this back half of september is looking at graduation rates of funds and we have decades of data that we're pouring through to look at the reality of how many funds really get through the gauntlet from a fund one to a fund eight. And I got to tell you, the general odds are bad. Like it is a hero's journey. Like, yeah, I, I'm just, um, in yeah. awe and humbled and feel like I personally have a lot to learn and exciting new challenge to think about all the firm building pieces and just, just understand how incredibly difficult it's really hard for the firms that have gotten it right. I think it speaks a little bit to the, is there persistence in venture or not? And where does it come from? Because I think there's early momentum that comes from one place that lives in the emerging manager land. But then how do you transition that into the established manager and maintain the momentum? And then part of that must come down to firm management tied to not losing your, your picking. Yep. And then also the keeping the LPs because it's, I'm sure it's like, I, what sticks in my head is what Adam said at the last um, podcast about stay in the game, which is if you can fundraise from LPs as a GP, you get to stay in the game and yep. figure out what you can yep. do on the investing side and the firm side. But if you can't, you, you can always stay in the, you can always just keep managing your portfolio, but you don't get new monies unless you can convince somebody yep. to take another risk at you. Yep. And it's, there's something in that cycle that can, 
yep. fall off the rails at any given time. We're really thrilled to be joined by you two, and we asked you here um, to join us in a roundtable on what Q4, and if you want to get into Q1, is going to look like. And the backup to this was we've spent a bunch of time looking at the numbers on other podcasts and talking about what we see coming out of PitchBook and AngelList. But you two are very accomplished investors, direct and indirect, and are going to be making decisions in Q4 that we just want to have a feed on the street conversation with what we're seeing. and. Maybe to kick things off, we'll do small intros, and I can start by saying a tad bit about your backgrounds, um, Sayan and Ed, or you can do it yourselves. What would you like? Uh, I, I prefer to speak less about myself, so be if you want to just do the background, I'll okay. be easier. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> I've known you for quite a while now, I'm very, very happy to say, and you founded Bold Start, which is, as you describe it, a day one seed fund focused on developer first infrastructure and SaaS founders. And what I also thought was going to be very interesting having you here besides your wit and insight was your tenure in venture and understanding sort of the ups and downs of markets. And while Boldstart is a very focused investor, it is by no means narrow and your, your line of sight through what's going on into the larger stage companies is always very insightful for me. Sayon, I've known you as a co-investor in early stage funds with me from your Greenspring days and now your Stepstone days, and you're always someone I enjoy working with because of your insights and thoughtfulness around the trends and how does one invest into them and see around some corners, and you marry that with your direct investing, which not all invest LPs do. And I think, it's a, I think it adds a superpower to thinking through portfolios of GPs. And as someone who's actively investing, and I'm sure has a strong pipeline of funds coming back to market. All right, let's get into it. So I've given you guys time to think through what you think is going to happen. It's Q4. Everyone's been waiting for Q4 23, and the world's going to get better. And I'm just going to start you off by saying it might not be better, but it's definitely busier. And who wants to pick up on that thread and tell me what you're seeing? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to pick up on the busier slash better thread. Look, I mean, I, I spend my time partnering with founders who are just getting started, as I say, day one at Incorporation. And um, we were kind of quiet over the, you know, a couple quarters uh, last year, if you know Beezer. And then in the last two quarters, I think we've done six net new um, lead kind of rounds. All of them were pretty competitive, by the way, as well. So um, what I'm seeing is that at that stage, there's been really not much of a slowdown other than last year for a little bit. And a lot of the multi-stage firms are popping in everywhere. Right. So what is that telling you? You know, you've got these billion dollar funds. They're making option bets all over again, all over the place. Nick, you're probably seeing the same thing as well. And there's two kinds of rounds happening right now, which once again is kind of kind of not that different from before. There's that one to two million dollar round where the founder just wants to test things out. And then there's that five million plus round, the five to eight million dollar round for that second or third time founder. And so from my perspective, the we'll call it the pre-A round market is as robust as ever. I'd say the challenge for many companies is that there's been a lot of seed companies that have been funded that just don't have the traction to get an A round done, right? Because investors are re really looking for kind of that momentum when they come and write a check. And I think there's gonna be a lot of companies that are stuck. So they're gonna be stuck with either existing seed firms um, writing extension checks to maybe buy up more ownership in their best winners or having that hard conversation of like, hey, 
if you can't get a round done, we should probably think about, you know, how to find a home. So those things are all happening concurrently. And, you know, the backlog in terms of meetings, when I talk to some of the later stage investors, they're, j they're jammed for the next two weeks already. These meetings were set up a couple of weeks ago. And so everyone's already kind of getting into the queue. So there's a lot of activity right now. Um, but as I said, from the seed perspective, it is as robust as I've ever seen it. You know, we have our fund of funds practice as Beezer, as you mentioned, our direct investing practice. And then we have a very large secondary practice also. And that secondary pool of capital can do either LP interests or portfolios of funds or secondary directs. Things have been really slow on the primary direct side where we typically invest is at the growth stage. So that's probably not a surprise. I do think it's starting to pick up. I think people have waited as long or companies have waited as long as they possibly can. And we are starting to see the trickle of folks that need that will run out of money in about a year or the end of 24. And so they're testing the market, et cetera. On the fund side, uh, continues to be really busy, but not necessarily in terms of us committing to funds. You know, I think a lot of LPs are in the same situation where there's a, just a lot of liquidity challenges and um, fundraising is a lot harder. And, you know, we invest out of drawdown vehicles because we have LPs ourselves. And uh, so I think like a lot of our LP friends, we are consolidating our manager roster in most programs, et cetera. And then I would say we've been very busy on the secondary side. Uh, I think up until very recently, um, really, really slow on the secondary direct side. I think there are a lot of uh, folks who are who have had a slow adjustment to the last round price environment not being what it is anymore. I think even in Q1 of this year, before we went into SVB weekend, I think people were feeling better. And then SVB weekend happened, and then all of a sudden, I think folks thought, oh, this is actually unfortunately going to last longer than we think. And um, the expectations have started to adjust a bit. But LPs have been trying to get liquidity for quite some time. And then another area where we're pretty busy is on this um, the constructs where a GP is trying to affect liquidity for their LPs, where they are they have ball control on that to try to generate DPI to get ready for when they're going to come back to fundraise next year. What I'm hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, is just like we can expect a lot more failures in the next couple quarters. Like, and it's just a market of sort of haves and have nots, um, which to me also is sort of a functioning market. Um, like the companies that are doing really well, that are still hitting numbers or in the ballpark or going to be able to raise same with funds. And the reality is just like loss ratios for probably companies and funds are probably going to look closer to what maybe historical numbers look like. And, um, yeah, in some ways I think this is, is functional this is a market functioning. I have a question for you. This is probably jumping way ahead. How do GPs affect liquidity in a way that's actually helpful um sure. for themselves for the founders for lps like manufacturing those things in my view historically has not been optimal 
Yeah. Um, um, I Beyond the obvious, uh, you know, where your companies are kind of going sideways and then maybe, you know, encouraging them to seek a soft landing, besides that sort of tool, there are some what we call we would call GP-led restructurings that we're doing more and more of. We're actually doing a bunch of education on it because it hasn't been that common until this downturn. And so, for example, one might be a strip sale where uh, you could take some subset or you could take your entire portfolio and decide to sell some percentage of your ownership in each of those companies. And you could do it directly so that the buyer goes directly on the cap table of the company. So it's just a bunch of discrete transactions related to your ownership in company A's A through D or A through you know K. Or you could do it in a structured sort of a synthetic fund-ish format. Um, another thing that we're talking to a bunch of uh, GPs about is for your older funds, uh, LP tenders. So again, there, the GP and we would, we go through the portfolio, you know, we have a view on price, here's the price we would offer, and then your LPs uh, can decide whether or not they want to liquidate or sell us some fraction, all or none of their LP interest into your fund. Then LPs who want liquidity can take it, and those who don't want to don't have to. Is something like that going to actually move the needle for a VC raising their next fund? And aren't we selling at like deep discounts at like the bottom say, of the market? I mean, like this is doesn't... not the time. Last year, yeah, two years ago, probably would have been the time to right. kind of go do something like this. Right. This is a time that the investors who believe in their companies should be figuring out which ones to shore up and put more money behind. Right. That may need a little kick in the butt to hire a few extra people to go a little bit faster. And this is also the ones where you're probably like, all right, let's perhaps find a home sooner rather than late, later. Right. And to sell now at the, at the bottom of the market, um, you know, yeah. GP liquidating would be a very tough spot, man. I'm yeah. And so that. I guess my question is that, does that actually for say on and Beezer, does that actually help you raise the next fund? Like, wasn't the, you should have sold two years ago. And now the fact that you're selling at the bottom at a deep discount, like, isn't that sort of, uh, kind of driving home that you made a bad decision two years ago? And why would an LP be more likely to fund the next fund if that was the case? And could you, could you unpack this? And maybe there's something to do with the vintages that tend to be the vehicles that do this, because I don't, you, you answer the question, but I think, I think there's actually some other material information there. Yeah, these tend to be older vintages, uh, call it on the inside, typically around seven years, if not more. Um, I do think that, uh, you know, every time I, the last downturn, this happened too, but every time there's a downturn, you know, you would get beat up about DPI. And I think in this last period, uh, it's been pretty stark because just because in hindsight, we all say like, of course you knew a hundred times or 300 times ARR wasn't reasonable. And so you should have taken some chips off the table. But well, some, some people that... have not figured that out yet. Do you still see that happening? Hell yeah. Well, so what I was going to wow. say was, I think some of that- AI. Blogging... AI. Oh yeah, I guess an AI. Yeah. yeah. Sayon, can you finish your point <laughs> about the DPI? Because- um, I think it's also the, the time in the fund that it's it's year seven, eight or nine. And also the vintages, like I'm betting this is not, I'm going to throw it out there as a thesis and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong and I should go to Vegas or not. These are probably not fund twos who are hoping to raise a fund three by doing a strip sale. These are probably older funds who may or may not be fundraising again, but there's a little bit more like the LPs are like, I got to close this thing out. It's, it's really old. 
There's some of that. I would say you're right. It's not like funds two or three. You know, we are typically buying older vintages. Um, and then I think, Nick, to your question, uh, I think initially folks started out by trying to do that and sell some of the junk and not keep the, or I'm sorry, and not try to liquidate most of the, you know, the beachfront property or whatever that expression is. Uh, but there are no buyers for that. And yep. we're seeing it actually at the portfolio level of LPs, because we get the question a lot, like, what kind of funds are actually for sale? Are they like, you know, emerging manager X whom nobody's ever heard of? I'm like, no, because everyone knows there's no bid for that. So if you're going to sell a portfolio, you've got to put some marquee properties in there and then someone will take it maybe as a bundle, right? Give no credit or very little credit for the names that may not be going concerns. And it's the same thing on the uh, company side that they're either it's like a percent or a small piece of your ownership of a great company, or it's maybe more of a very, very decent company that was just capitalized at the wrong, not, that not today's number. So to marry together what Ed was saying and what you were saying, you really do, maybe it's exactly what Nick said, like there's a really bifurcated market out there, like where there's some, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be challenged and needs to be sold off or packaged up. And do we think that's going to, do we think that's going to happen in Q4 or is this a longer, does it take a longer process and it's going to be kind of dragged out? Because you tell me I'm wrong. I don't think you can flip a switch and be like, okay, we're just done with you company. Give back the money. I mean, it doesn't happen like that, right? I would just say in the portfolio company side, there are still companies that have raised way too much cash, way ahead of time at way too high, higher price. And the smarter ones got ahead of the curve and cut their burn rate, you know, uh, and realized maybe they weren't a product market fit. These companies might have four to five years of eternal runway right now. So you're not going to see, you know, some of these unicorns out there that are no longer unicorns uh, out in the market or dying. There's going to be a long lag factor, almost like the way these are like funds take a long, you know, there's these zombie funds that sit around for five extra years. I think we're going to have a class of zombie companies that sit around for the next three years, spinning their wheels, trying to get stuff done. They'll never, ever be able to grow in their valuation. Um, and that's, uh, and, and nor will they, and nor do they need, need the money. So they're just going to sit around and, and, you know, sit in people's portfolios and, you know, I'm not sure what they'll do. Can Try your, to... can your companies poach people from those companies? Oh, those people, all the best people will leave. Once yeah. kind of, you know, that once you make that really, really big cut, if they don't believe in the vision, all the best people go very fast. I mean, within three months, right? So as much as you think they're going to stick around, they're all gone. They'll, they'll move to the next they thing. Could, so they, that, that's your point. Is they good, they good could make acquisitions. I'm just, I'm just thinking about ways in which, you know, sort of company, not quite a product market fit or not at scale, has a lot of capital on the balance sheet. Don't know if that I, leads I, I to think, success, Nick, but you could see some acquisitions there. To your point, financial engineering, I think, comes back when you're sitting yep. on boatloads of cash right yep. now. And so maybe the traditional Silicon Valley VCs who are, aren't as astute with financial engineering, but I'll give you a couple examples. One is um, I was talking to a portfolio company and I'm like, aren't you glad you cut your burn You know, six months ago, even though you didn't want to? Because acquisition folks were coming around and you have a later stage business, whether it's private or public. All they care about is a rule of 40. All they care about is getting profitable. So if you have a company with great technology, maybe they haven't started selling the product yet, but they're burning a million dollars a month. It's going to take them a long time to get that to break even, that acquisition to break even, because mostly it's engineers, let's say. However, that company is burning 400 a month. 
you know, and there's a product ready to sell that they can stuff in their channel. Maybe it takes them two quarters to get to cash flow break even. But I have seen companies pass on acquiring other companies because the burn rate, burn rate was too high. So that is another reason why. Um, and, and this is outside of adjusting valuation expectations in people's minds, right? That's another kind of conversation altogether. But burn rate metrics matter when people are acquiring companies right now. Okay. So in Q4, we're going to see a ton of meetings. Everyone's going to have lots of busy calendars. Yay. Um, but we're not going to see the unicorns go out of business, although they might try to acquire organic growth. Who's going out of business? Is it this, the seed companies that were funded? I don't even know what the right time frame is. 18 months ago because they were new, new then, but they're not the new, new thing now. And if they haven't hit their metrics, it's stalling. Or is Q4 going to be more of the beginning part of this year where we're all just still waiting to see? I kind of think there's going to be uh, a lot of, um, you know, Nick used the word failures and, you know, there are like failures where it's a failed investment and the, but then like the headline is, oh, they got acquired, but like equity holders got nothing kind of thing, right? I would consider that sort of a failure. But um, I think there are going to be a lot of those across multiple stages, not just seed. I think A, B, um, you know, we were... I think we were talking about this right before we started recording, but about um, just the activity in B. And earlier this year, like in Q2, the data came out about Q1, that the number of Series Bs that had been raised, uh, as well as I think the dollars, was down north of 80%. Uh, and I still think um, that it's pretty, even though expectations for valuation have adjusted, uh I still don't think they are where what where people are willing to write those offers today. So I think there's going to be a lot of hurt. I, I think so, to too. I mean, I, I think to Ed's point, there are a certain class of company that have raised extraordinary amounts of money, have cut burn, have years and years and years of runway, even if they're not growing. But I actually think that's probably, I don't know, a smaller. I, I don't think that's the norm. Ed, I mean, you, you, you maybe disagree, but oh, like, I, I think I definitely, that's I definitely don't because that's not the norm. I'm yeah, just talking about kind of all that's the some certain companies and they'll be around for two, three, four, five years. I think most companies that have raised in the last couple of years are going to be out trying to raise in the next 12 months or even sooner in the next six to 12 oh, months. I, I think they're all starting to, uh, now. I think a lot of them have tried to wait until after Labor Day to hit yeah. Q4, right? Yeah. The interest rate environment is horrible. You know, maybe the interest rates settle down again, but I think we'll start seeing a bunch in Q4, to your point, and then probably start peaking like in Q2, Q3 next year, right? Um, and, you know, and I think it's what's interesting is that what multi-stage firms have to think about is, do I write a check, you know, a net new um, to people where I believe in the future, where there's, there's, no, there's no mess, right? Or do I come in and this company that's been around for three years and has raised six million bucks, has accomplished, maybe they're 500K ARR right now after all that. And do I want to write a check into this 20 person company that cut down to 10 and get in and do that? And, and I can tell you that it's going to be harder for people to do the latter one. It's so much easier to believe in someone that hasn't built a product yet, to believe in the future and the vision. So I think there's going to be all these companies that just kind of got stuck, which is where the seed funds who are already existing investors are going to have to make those choices. And they probably should have made those choices well before they, they cut back down to 10 and just said, hey, like, you know what? I believe in you. I see the traction. We're going to have to go and, and, and write bigger checks. And that's kind of where you put the chips on the table. And it's either going to make you 
a, a great investor or a bad investor, depending on how that second check or third check looks like. Um, I mean, I can tell you that in Sneak's case, we had to write three checks before they even got to the A round. Uh, Big ID had, we had three checks before they got to the A round. A customer wrote a, a check in between the A and the B, and then they ended up selling to Meta for over a billion. So I think a lot of our best companies, um, and there are signs of success, right? Product velocity, hiring velocity, um, customers maybe kind of, you know, pipeline building, but then maybe the customers were, were ready to sign, but they haven't signed yet, right? So they're still going through a security process and they're running out of cash. So I think, I think this is where really great investors are going to figure out and just, you know, take a pen and be like, all right, let's try to help these founders find a home. Let's back the truck up in this one and, and let's see, right? And, and that's kind of what's going to make great funds in this market. I agree, you know, but I agree. Just one point. I agree, but I think it will be even harder today or in the next year than it was in previous years, given just where we are in the cycle. So the, the conviction required is going to be, is going to have to be very, very serious. But I hear you at, I, I do think it will be the difference between kind of great and good investors in the next few years, but damn, it's going to be hard. Like oh, growth, growth rates easy. are slowing. You're not going to see the it, same it, type it, of growth it, it, in the last few years. It's never easy. Yeah. Well, and I think I've, I was actually been going through some, um, I don't know what you call them, like pre-annual meeting check-ins. Um, and I've been noticing some of the Series A funds are doing what you're talking about, which is the preemptive cleaning up of the cap table in order to help the companies raise the next round so that the Series B or C investor, or maybe it's whatever it is, it's up the stack, doesn't have to do the cleaning up, but they're doing it proactively. I don't know. I think... I think the experience you brought to starting your own seed fund is not necessarily the same experience that a lot of the newer seed funds have. So I, I don't know how many people know how to do that, which is to your point about financial engineering or structuring, because I, I'm, I would guess would see more Series A funds doing this to help their companies, but, but I could be wrong on that guess. I'm just extrapolating based on how many... Oh, so, okay, you agree with me, Sam? <laughs> I was going to say something similar, as I 100% agree with that, is... Uh, you know, right or wrong, I think one thing that's becoming increasingly important, whether you're a investor, uh, sorry, a board member, um, you know, direct investor or an LP, is what's really starting to become apparent is who has experience and who's seen this before, who's done the hard thing, had the hard conversations, restructured companies, recapitalized them, uh, and who hasn't, and even understanding reserves, etc. You know, so couple of seed managers I have this conversation with who are doing it for the first time. And, uh, you know, there's, they're kind of talking about, oh, well, this company, there was an inside round. So we did, you know, 70 grand here. And then in this company, we did a hundred there. And then I was like, you know, if I were you, my, you know, sort of uh, not worth much advice would be, I think you should look at your companies and be very ruthless about whom you have faith in and, you know, who you don't, because this, you know, 50K here, 100K there, it's, it, it will add up to a deal that you cannot do. Also, if you don't do it that way, then it's just whoever happens to hit your inbox first is going to get the check versus if you're not thinking sort of systematically or methodically about who you have con confidence in. Uh, and again, it seems, I'm sure, obvious to, you know, Ed and Nick, but um, I don't think it's obvious to everybody who's kind of, you know, on a f very early fund number. 
I have one one other comment sort of related, but I also think you're going to see um, a number of companies abandoned by the multi-stage firms. So there's, you know, I don't, I won't name names, but big multi-stage firm wrote a five, 10, $15 million check, maybe led to A. Uh, maybe actually doesn't even have that much insight into the company, hasn't been that involved um, and not worth quote unquote their time, even, even to spend time trying to figure out if there's a there there. And, um, and that will be very interesting in my view to see, cause there, there may be some seed firms or other folks on the cap table that could actually do some restructuring. It means probably cramming down a much bigger multi-stage firm. Um, and even that might be too complexity for anybody to actually do it and get involved, but starting to see some of those too. I would agree. And then also there's junior partners that are leaving firms right now or transitioning. So I actually look in the portfolio here, two board seats were changed over because people had left for either voluntary or involuntary reasons or reasons you don't even know about. Um, uh, but by the way, Nick, you know that those things, uh, as sad as it may be for a founder, are good for funds like ours, you know, because um, when I go in, I pitch against some of these firms, either I'll, I'll co-lead with some of these multi-stage firms and just say, hey, you know what my job is? My job is to keep them honest. If you want them to lead your A, my job is to help you get, as, uh, get a market bid from them, right? As much as we want them to lead the A, I've got to make sure that you do the things you need to do so that they're not the only game in town, right? Um, and so, but your point is that these are all option checks. I mean, I, I can't tell you, and I would love to hear from Beezer and Sion, there are all these multi-stage firms are sitting on billions of dollars. These $5 million checks are nothings. They're nothing burgers. They're writing, they're writing them left and right. And it definitely causes pricing issues in the market too, because price does matter. Um, owning 15% versus 10% matters um, when you enter, enter into companies. So, you know, that's, that's kind of what I'm seeing. And they're, they're writing more and more of them um, right now. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I was going to say that too, so, uh, that A, I do feel like um, I hear from a bunch of uh, our seed managers, like what Ed says is that you want to, that you, there's a lot of advice being given to founders that you want to be careful about taking that check from them um, because of this negative single signal downstream. And then, uh, uh, and then again, exactly to what Ed said, I said, I also feel like we're seeing a lot of turnover or there's no champion for the company anymore at the larger fund or firm. And um, a lot of times that's how they'll try to excuse themselves from not participating or not being super enthusiastic about the company. But uh, again, it's pretty negative signaling to the market. And so I think um, it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing that we're seeing. Yeah, I, I think founders are waking up to it, the, the risks of the multi-stage. Um, but it's shocking still how many deals these firms are doing. Um, and I think mostly, like I, I hear sometimes from founders, like I'd really love to work with seed firms, but multi-stage firm X is paying me twice the price. Like they're just, they're just paying up. I don't even think founders is their first choice most of the time. But... Um, it's just very hard to compete on price. Nick, I'm seeing just founders that we've tracked for a while um, who are still iterating on their projects, let's just say, and we're helping them think through some of it. We're not fully there yet. Still getting 
five million dollar checks yeah. at twenty posts for multi stage firms when they have even and the multi stage firms aren't even helping them iterate. They're just saying, Hey, I'll give you five at twenty, I'll park you here. And it's hard for them to say no, frankly, to kind of do those things. There's smarter founders who've been there before and done that saying, I don't want to do that because that's opportunity cost with my time. And I feel like I'm gonna owe you something. So I don't feel fully believe in this thing yet that I've gotten there with, um, you know, that you're funding me for, then I don't want to take your money because then I'm it's kind of like a it's kind of like it's, it puts me in a tough spot. Now I have to deliver against this and I'm not convinced myself. Yeah. And so, you know, if that founder is going to take the five and 20 and they're still iterating on three different ideas and the multi-stage firm isn't helping them, I'd rather not be part of that right journey because how convicted are they be about hiring someone else? Now they're, now they're forced to just take a whiteboard and say, gee, maybe not, these three ideas don't matter. Let me just, I don't know, add an AI thing on it and, <laughs> and do that, even though I don't love it. Even though I don't love it. Just say that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into this. So we were talking about before how um, Terrence had tweeted out about, I think it was a chart. Oh, I should really get my reference correctly. I think it was AngelList or maybe it was PitchBook about the angel to pre-seed deals done recently were predominantly Bay Area and New York. And I know, Ed, you've got a different view on where else, where great companies can be started. But I'm wondering if this is also not partially driven by the AI blips in these cities and also by the presence of where the multi-stage funds are because if again they didn't show who was writing the checks but somebody has to be writing the checks where these companies wouldn't be being funded um and I, i'm just wondering if maybe that's partially true or what are you guys seeing about the geography because that's i don't think there's one answer on where the geography is but i think it's interesting that the numbers are pretty stark i mean he sort of tweeted it under the the power law of where the dollars are going i would say that as times get harder, people go back to what they know. And what they know is, let me go fund my buddies in the Bay Area. Let me go fund my buddies in New York, right? So that that's kind of what's happening. I say the second thing is, is that, you know, the question that we have when we're funding kind of new teams, we say, hey, tell me kind of what your working culture is going to be. Are you going to be a default everyone kind of in one location to get started and then you expand? Is it going to be default everyone uh, in one place at all the time? Or is it going to be default remote? Um, a, a lot of the companies, I'd probably say two thirds of the companies that we funded recently, were all like, first 10, I need to be in the office, right? I need, I need them to be in the office. I want everyone around. And, I, and this is not speaking towards the benefits of remote or not, but you just get shit done faster regardless as a operating business when you're all there together. And it might not be five days a week, it might be three days a week, the two, you know, two co-founders in the room. And so I think that's part of it too. So where, where are the concentration of people kind of going to be? I think that's another factor too. And that's, that's a big change we're seeing right now is kind of default first 10 in the same place. I think default remote, unless there's a really good reason through the first 10 is a huge negative signal right now. Um, and I just, I can just say we, we, uh, we work with a couple teams in the office that are under 10 and in the, in the past year, it's been an incredible reminder of like what really smart, motivated people in the same room can accomplish in a very short period of time. And um, I, I just, when I meet these default remote teams, there's, unless there's a, a really thoughtful strategy and reason, I, I'm taking that as, a, as, a, as basically a red flag um, right now in this market. And I actually don't care where, they, where you are. If you're in San Francisco or New York or Ohio, or Miami or like, but you got to be in the same room. 
Um, yeah, for us, through the last five, we're out of Israel. And of course, yep. you know, you want all your Israeli engineering there. So yep. that's easy, right? I mean, obviously, there's some turmoil <laughs> there, uh, political turmoil outside of all that. But but yeah, default kind of engineering teams and kind of starting teams. In fact, some of our companies, maybe that just got ahead of their skis, let's just say, in terms of raising rounds at higher prices, maybe, you know, thought they had product market fit, hired a low two in advance. Uh, a lot of them have, have shrunk back and gone default who's who's been coming to the office and you know three days a week back in the office yep. as well so I, yep. I i can think a couple off the top of my yep. head so that that is a movement coming back just get shit done yep i agree by the way doesn't I don't, i'm not saying five days nine to five like yep. you know but yeah. core in the office whatever it is a few days a week and um okay let, let's just talk about ai for a sec um and ventures incredible need to manufacture hype cycles <laughs> Um, what is it, what is it about the venture capital industry, um, where we just need to have the current hype cycle and we can talk about AI and not AI, but like, what, what is it? I love that comment. Every time I think about AI, I think about, uh, I don't know if you saw the movie blades of glory. Uh, and, and it's a great, cause there's a great scene. And one of the guys says, uh, I don't even know what that means. And then Will Ferrell is on the treadmill and goes, nobody knows what that means that's provocative <laughs> it gets the people going that's kind of what ai is yeah. right because we had ai in 2016. Yep. in 2016 ai was the next big thing 2018 um you know ibm uh the ceo of ibm says ai and everything it's 2023 now and we have ai again so i kind of like look at that yogi Berra quote it's deja, deja vu all over again and to your point it's like hey I am an enterprise info fund. Now I'm a crypto fund. Now I'm a AI fund, right? And so it's like, to your point, people need need to believe in something. And in my opinion, you know, AI is a technology. It's going to be embedded in everything where it makes sense. And where it doesn't make sense, it shouldn't be there. And you still have to solve a massive problem. And this reminds me a lot of the data center, internet data center craze back in like 2017. You know, I mean, back in like, back in the 90s and then 2017, the days of Akamai, you know, people were just investing in infra. They had all this money that they're sitting on and they're like, shit, I can write a $200 million check here. I can buy GPUs and maybe, you know, maybe I'll get a return on this thing, right? LPs pricing, they're saying, if I want to buy GPUs, I'll just buy Nvidia stock. I'm not paying you to take my VC dollars and invest in GPUs right now, but it's a great way to say, gee, let me put $200 million to work, $100 million to work in this new LLM model and and kind of see what see what happens, right? So I think there's a near-term bubble, massive, massive near-term bubble, but I think long-term, like the next five to seven years, it's gonna be absolutely transformational in a lot of areas and not in every area, right? So, I mean, I still think there's hallucination problems for security. The more mission critical something is, the more, a hallucination problem where, yep. where the AI says, hey, this is really good, uh, becomes more important, right? That's security, um, you know, even like drugs, right? There's things like that, but there'll be easy things like copywriting and all that other stuff that gets LLM'd away. So I, I don't know, that, that's kind of where I am, but I'm with you. It's it's insane right now, kind of the AI discussion. Credit, credit to VCs though for manufacturing these hype cycles. They're extremely good at it. Like, yes, we're, we're very good at it. <laughs> From an LP perspective, are you getting pitched AI only funds or is it I need to raise my next fund to do a lot more AI, but I'm not AI only because 
we're not seeing as many yeah. AI only funds as you would think given some of the past hype cycles, but there's definitely a, oh, that billion dollars can now be invested in these $200 million slugs, right? I agree with you. So I was going to say, so Ed, I remember in 2017, 2018, where there were a bunch of like AI specific funds. And then there was, you know, even at one point people were, should I have an IOT fund? And then yeah. that, you know, it took a while, but then it finally went to like, oh, it's actually, you know, it's horizontal, it's not vertical. And for a hot minute, I think that there were people who were saying AI, but now it pretty quickly reverted to these are what you're saying with everybody saying like, oh, AI is one of my, you know, is informs everything that we invest in. Da, da, da. So it's clearly uh, changed the marketing of the pitch. And, you know, so um, one of our um, managers, I think they're on a fund seven, the two things on the page that they say they invest in were like software and AI. And I was like, I said, Hey, you know, this feels super um, gimmicky. Uh, and it doesn't ring true to what, you know, you're on a fun seven to what you've been investing in in one through six. And it's like, you're just trying to use the buzzwords for today. And so if it were me, you know, I really, I really um, value authenticity and uh, I wouldn't do that, but um you know, then similarly, like we, I did a call with an emerging manager yesterday and they're on a fund three. And then they said, we're an AI focused fund. And I thought, I was like, this shows some of your inexperience because the first two funds weren't institutional. And I was like, nobody's really saying they're an, nobody's saying they're an AI fund right now. You know, they're maybe deep tech or, you know what I mean? But um, so I agree with that. I kind of feel like people got the message this time much more quickly than in 18. I just bought notation.ai. <laughs> during this conversation so, use, I, want, I already have both, crypto nick nick i already have bolt start vc.ai thank god I'm, thank I'm, god are you i don't think you're viable Ed, without it i, I just like an xyz or a dot io yep. or whatever right yeah you know? gotta have it gotta have it i i don't know because i'd love to i'd love to know from you like isn't AI and everything like if it helps solve a problem faster? I mean, isn't there AI in it? I, that's why I'm kind of confused because like I looked at my portfolio and I'm, I'm previewing some of our annual meeting stuff, but like 70% of our companies uh, where, you know, where it makes sense are delivering a product today or within the next 12 months that's AI related. Um, and it may be the main thing. It may be the third thing and you know, where it makes sense, we're going to do it. And where it doesn't make sense, you're not going to do it. So. I guess I'm an AI fund, so I'm going to rebrand myself as BoldStartVC.ai yeah. and, and market that to AI yeah. founders. You know, you need to, you need to, Ed. Um, but I worry also. Yeah. I, I worry also that, that these hype cycles are distracting to uh, to founders as well. So I, I think Ed, like like you said, like thinking, having a thoughtful strategy around it where it actually makes sense. Like, and to me, makes sense. Customers are demanding it for whatever reason, I'm, I don't know, maybe that's sometimes the case. I don't think customers really care about AI other than the product doing what it's doing better. Um, or in my view, makes sense. We're seeing this in lots of portfolio companies, ways in which you can affect the cost structure of your business. Um, but I think even founders, I'm having conversations, and this happened in crypto and in lots of other hype cycles, what's my AI strategy? And, um, and so I'm just trying as much as I can with founders to just say, like, focus on the customer. What's the customer asking? How can we make the product better? 
Um, and if there's ways in which we think we can use some of these new tools to do that, then then let's talk about that. But I worry that um, it can it, these hype cycles can also just be so distracting for founders. Yeah, I agree a thousand percent with you. I, I always like to say it's always about the fundamentals and the tech, whether it's the internet or mobile or Java, it doesn't really matter. It, it's if the customers kind of get value out of it. And from our discussions with enterprises, you know, let's just say like the largest bank in the world, um, they're deathly afraid of rolling out and people are using AI, but they're deathly afraid of rolling it out until they solve privacy issues, security issues, and a lot of other things. So it's happening, like the freight train has left and they, they already have like 200 applications in production right now. But a lot of that stuff they built already a, a long time ago, right? In the first hype cycle in 2016, a lot of people put billions of dollars into data infrastructure, labeling the data. Then this thing called the cloud came along where banks felt comfortable putting all their stuff in the cloud. So now you have data in the cloud, you've got um, data infrastructure spent, you've got machine learning experts, and then all you have to do now is call, make an API call to kind of roll that out. So they're prepared to actually take advantage of it today but it's not for everything the way that everyone talks about it, right? I mean, there's gonna be, there's gonna be a lot of actually lost money here. There's gonna be a lot of pain yep. from, from all these prices and everything. I mean, who's gonna fund things at a billion and a half dollars with a hundred million dollars of capital for five founders who have a PhD uh, in machine learning and they're the 20th team to go after it? I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think the odds are great for that. I, have, I actually, opinion. this is, Sorry, go this ahead, is my contrarian statement for this podcast. I don't know if there are enough mega funds left in the market to keep that hype cycle going. Ooh. But you know what? I, you know what, though? Wow. I think there are, I don't think there are going to be the mega funds. Um, there's one of these LLM companies that got funded by a, a CVC in Asia. Um and I think that there are other very deep sources of capital that are potentially going to put money behind more of these. And I actually had to, I had a conversation with that group uh, a couple weeks ago, and they said that it was priority for the family that owns the conglomerate and mm -hmm. the company has negative gross margins, but they put a nine figure check in. It's one of the few company, you know, they haven't invested in many companies in the past. And so I was like, oh, hmm. that's interesting. <laughs> it's okay. So it's, yeah, I'll be curious to see how it evolves. I have a, uh, one last question. I'll leave it to Beezer to go around the horn, some other um, final thoughts, but um, just switching uh, gears for a second. Uh, how about venture over the next couple of quarters? Um, what do we think? Yeah. What do we think that looks like? And I have sort of a sub question that I've been thinking a lot about, which yeah. is, um, there's so many funds. Um, I'm curious to hear from Beezer and, and say in particular, like what does different look like for you, um, in the next let's say a few quarters, like you see fund after fund, every stage, large, small, um, like what, what does different in venture look like over the next five to 10 years? Ed and I have, well, Ed's been through uh, a few cycles. I've been through this last cycle and it just seems to me like there's so much of the same. Um, I'm not even, I'm not even differentiating myself from that. And I'm like, what, what, what does like, what does really different 
look like to you guys? And what do you think we see in the next couple quarters? I really appreciate the question because there are very few GPs who ask that. And actually, conversely, I think I like to joke, everybody thinks they're special. Um, and so, so we had a couple dozen investment team interns this summer. And I had one of the teams work on a data project for me. And so this is actually the first time uh, I'm talking about it in the sort of not <laughs> behind closed doors. Um, but there were 2,991 funds, sub $300 million in the United States raised between 2018 and now. And uh, of that, a little more than half in terms of unique managers. So that was fun. So call it almost 3,000 yep. funds about 1,700 managers. 70% of them were in five states. More than half had one, at least one diverse GP. 60% uh, had at least one GP who went to an Ivy Plus school, which was the Ivy's, University of Chicago, MIT, and, and I put Cal in there too. Stanford's lower down, I assume. Stanford's mid, mid, mid <laughs> Oh, sorry, Stanford's mid-tier. No, we don't care. Sorry, no, sorry. We don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. I, yeah. Um, I, love, I love that. I love that. I love that sort of dig on Stanford. Appreciate it. And then 55% of them had a GP who was a previous startup founder, meaning uh, everybody is, uh, you know, a lot of these fund managers are, you know, just exceptional, right, in terms of the resume, the work experience. And you know, it's, we have, you have so few slots. It's really hard. Like when yeah, I was talking about this yesterday, actually with a, a bunch of folks that when a founder asks you for feedback, you know, you can probably give them some feedback about the business model or, you know, whatever, but we, it, people don't ask for feedback often when we turn them down, but once in a while when they do, it's, it's really a struggle because there are quite a lot that are very above average where I actually have started to tell people if they ask, you know how they say like Harvard will reject thousands of kids who have a perfect test score, GPA, valedictorian, captain of the soccer team, and they still don't get in. It's not dissimilar to that because everybody's exceptional. So anyway, I think as a result of that, A, I think we all know you're going to see a lot of groups that are not going to be able to raise subsequent funds. And I've got a lot of, you know, we have a lot of established managers. Bees, I'm sure you're hearing the same thing. I, I, I started a list because I have so many people asking like, Oh, I need a, I need a partner, ideally diverse, but who's technical because of this AI. You know, I've had like six people ask me for that, and I've said, you know what, you should go look in the emerging manager space because I think there are a lot of folks who are secretly saying, I'm not going to raise another fund. I, I, you know, I can't make it work, um, or it's been too hard. Um, and so I think what is going to make you stand out is, or one stand out is. A, subject matter expertise, because you've got this proliferation of funds now. I don't know if you all know Knuckle, and I want to give him credit because I hear people oh, yeah, quoting he, him all the time a, now. He's a but, good, good part of mine. Who is this? Uh, Knuckle from Audacious. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, sure. But Knuckle, I think, really encapsulated. He's like, you know, the VC job, if you break it down into its component parts, it's sourcing, picking, winning, and value add. And again, I think people are now starting to use some of that language. Um, but because you've had a lot of folks who are former operators or worked at a big company or started a company, as well as the fact that general, I mean, relatively speaking, this is a 
small community, right, of founders and VCs and et cetera. Um, and so the sourcing and the value add have really become table stakes. And so it's really the picking or the investment judgment, which unfortunately, what I was saying, I'm sorry to say this, is it takes time. This is such a long-tailed asset class. And folks whom we thought were heroes up until little less than two years ago are actually, you know, it's like, oh, it was actually the market. So it's the picking. And then I think to a lesser extent, the winning, because we are seeing a lot of funds who are, you know, it's a, I think it's a very different thing to get an angel check in as a friends and family or, you know, a 15 or $20,000 check in versus winning around or winning the lead with a, you know, million dollar check. And so we're really focusing more on that. And again, I think that's going to be what differentiates um, and it's a little bit of, again, like I said, I, I sort of hope like it, it's understandable, hopefully why I feel like, I feel sorry to say that because it just takes time. Yep. Um, I'd agree with that. I think I love listening to you share. So thank you, Sayon, for sharing, giving that context. So I'm going to say everything you said underscored. And I would say when people have a meeting Regardless if we have room, because that's the whole challenge of everyone could be qualified but not get in. Um, two things that stand out are, and I'm stealing this from, um, I think she's the CIO of Packard Foundation. She said this on a podcast recently, like everyone could see everybody's wearing green shirts, but it's the manager who sees something different about how the data is speaking to you about everyone wearing green shirts that stands out because it is a bit of the ability to see something different and new in the same data. Sometimes you have different data, but the breadth of the world's ability to suck in data now, it's unlikely. Like there's not exactly like a different set of proprietary information out there. So there is something about people that take a different perspective with the same data that everybody else has, that I think leads to the picking. I think it's part of the engine to that. And then I'd say this again and again, you got to be able to articulate. Like it kills me when these wonderful, capable, brilliant people come and I can't even begin to say what's different about their fund. Yeah. <laughs> And, and you know it's in there, but you're like, and it's kind of to your point about why is someone doing AI on the top of a fund that was, let's just say it was consumer. And you're like, why are you saying you're AI? You're a consumer, like own it. And tell me why consumer is like badass and I'm just an idiot for not having more of it or whatever it is that you are, but it's the muddled story when you're like, I don't, if I have to write your story for you, we're having a problem um, on, the, on the standing out side of things. And I think it's trickier in the emerging manager world to your point, there's just fewer data points and you have to write a story. But like I say, both Ed and Nick, you both wrote me stories and, and we're like, here's, here's what's true. And we'll have to wait for the world to catch up, but here's These what's are, true. It took a long time. <laughs> I think it took us eight years before we got, you know, I think perhaps you guys on board and Greenspring slash Stepstone. I like to say the artist, I tell Hunter, the artist formerly known as Greenspring, because I don't <laughs> yet, sorry, Sion. But, um, but, you know, and the flywheel takes a long time. I mean, if, I, if you ask me the question that I think there's an existential crisis in venture right now, I think way too much money has been raised and we were built to have companies that were worth a hundred billion dollars. Right. And Snowflake now is not a hundred billion dollars. It's 50 billion. And it's a great freaking company, right? Great company. But in the world where, you know, we used to underwrite for how do I return more than the fund back in a billion dollar deal? I think it became, how do I underwrite the fund for a company that returns 10 to 20 billion? And if we don't come back to that market, then I think the question is, is if it's a $5 billion top end exit, which is top, top, top end, and then, you get a billion dollar company, how are you gonna make money there? And I think that is bringing the multiples back to earth. 
And then the question really is, what's the fund size, right? Because I think the fund size then is going to really, really matter about kind of the multiples of returns that you would expect from venture uh, with the risks that you get. So I would imagine that back, back like in the uh, internet bubble back in 2001, 2002, remember people raised these funds that were so, so massive and they gave money back. Um, and so I question, you know, I know, I understand why the multi-funds exist. Like they're phenomenal branding. They, they have lots of great partners and it's a great place for someone to write a $300 million check, you know, to get allocation and they're going to they're gonna do fine. But I think outside of those multi-stage funds, the question is, is what about everyone else? And I think you're either going to be really small and, and, and focused and, I'm slightly biased, you know, for Nick and I kind of type of funds, like really, really focused, hyper-specialized, or you're going to be a multi-stager. I think anything in the middle gets absolutely hammered, hammered. But you know um, what, and so I, I, Ed, I, I agree, but we, we need the middle. Like, like the companies need the middle. We need the middle um, because my, my concern, I, I, and we were actually, Beezer and I were talking about this in uh before you guys hopped on but like i think more companies are going to need to go um are to are going to need to build proper cash flow positive businesses earlier in their life cycle than historically and i think partly that is because there are there will be fewer and fewer firms that will be able to underwrite them to a $600 million outcome. Like, like those firms just won't exist. The company will not be able to raise capital if that's the goal or natural size of their business. And so in a world in which there's very small funds, huge multi-stage funds, the only outcome in venture means that every founder has to walk into those firms and pitch why they're a $50 billion company. And I, I would agree with you on the need. Um, the point is there could be a series B only fund that goes in there and they have an expertise, for example, like I'm a, you know, $750 million fund and I have incredible, look at all my operating partners that can come in to help you get to cash flow positive faster. Right. Like, but really focused in biotech yeah. or enterprise software yeah. scale. Right. You know, and, and I think that you can do that. I would love to have partners like that on the board with some of my companies, frankly, to have another voice in the room. But so, yeah, but I think my point is you just have to be specialized if you're not kind of on yep. the edges. Yep. Yep. Super special. I told Nick before this started, I was really energized for Q4, but it's for sort of sad reasons. Cause I think, and I'm sort of building off of what Nick had said before. I think we are still bumping along the bottom when you come from an LP's perspective, because all the discussion we had about all the stuff that's still working through, if you ask your average LP, they're, they're aware that this is happening, but they don't know how much is in their portfolio. So if you want to, if you want to know if you're wildly overvalued still, you don't know because the company's, the, the information isn't there. And then when you go to re-underwrite or start a new relationship, you don't know what the companies are really doing because we're now getting more information about the health of the underlying companies. But for a lot of 2020, 2021, 2022, like, it, it, the world was moving too fast. And I think in that point of lack of information or just it's too soon, you're going to see LPs pausing, continue to pause. So it's not that people won't be funded, but I, I think this is what you're seeing in the market. I just think it's going to take longer and whatever happens in the startup funding land, expect there to be a lag in the general LP population la land of, of, so for all those funds coming back in Q1, Q4, 
I'm betting it's going to take a little while longer because people are going to want to see what the portfolio is doing. And that's, that's probably not a happy thought, but I think the healthier market will result in better decisions. I agree with that. I was going to say, I don't think there's going to be too much different in Q4. I think you know, where we saw the big um, markdowns since this whole you know, sort of volatility began was in the Q4 marks from 22. And then I was kind of joking that, you know, with you know, their LPs, I'm like, oh, I wonder if it's because the auditors forced everyone to take these markdowns or whatnot. Because since then, it's been very de minimis moves. Um, and, you know, we started to get two Q numbers. And uh, anyway, so I agree with that. I don't think there's going to be too much different. I think, you know, I guess we'll see how, you know, these IPOs go. Um, I hope it'll be better, but um, maybe, you know, maybe there'll be some, we'll have some data about that, right? Like the the ARM and Clavio and Instacart. I heard the Instacart, I haven't looked at it, but the numbers look better than people might've thought. Um, but I think Q4 will be a lot of the same. I'll take the other side. And then hopefully- I'll take the other side. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to say we actually see some like, uh, some real- uh, sad failure in the next few quarters and some capitulation um, in venture. Um, and I sort of, I think we see finally, I think we see the bottom in the next couple quarters. Um, so a lot of companies failing. I think there will be more markdowns, actually. I think actually, if anything, we heard from our auditors last year, don't touch it. Like, leave it at the last mark. Don't make our jobs harder. All your peers, oh, all your peers are leaving it at the same mark. Don't touch it. And so I actually think <laughs> you hear less of that from auditors this year. I think you see some big markdowns actually in the next couple quarters. I think you see, sorry to be Mr. Darkness. Um, I, I think you see capitulation and venture in the next few quarters. And then I think you actually see a pretty good, a start to be a healthier 2020, 20, back end of 2024, 2025. So I, I think... Um, and I've spent a lot of time in crypto, so I've seen some crazy cycles. And I do sort of think you need a capitulation moment to get back to healthy markets. And I don't feel like we truly, I mean, SVB was maybe close, but then things sort of came back. And I don't think we've seen like whatever, I'm not sure exactly what that looks like, but I don't think we've seen true capitulation in, in venture or early stage venture. Um, and so... Uh, I think we see that in the next few quarters. That'd be my hot take. <laughs> uh, all right, I'll give you my take. I'll just give the enterprise software lens. And um, if you look at kind of the cloud companies like Satya, uh, he was basically saying he felt like optimization was almost over. And then a lot of the numbers driving his growth, which was slower than before, was net new workloads. So that's a very positive sign. I would say the other thing is, is that I think net dollar retention, there are all these artificial constructs for enterprise companies where best-in-class net retention is 135% or greater. Um, by the way, that's easy in a bull market when everyone's overspending and, and pre-optimization. Um, you're still growing 100% year over year after you uh, go public. I think those have all changed and people are realizing that those are changing. So I think once we get normalized, I feel like we're bottoming it out on the optimization area now. And I think the customers, and if you look at net retention, it's a 12-month trailing kind of number. I think customers that came on board Q4, Q1 last year really won the product and probably bought smaller chunks and they're going to start optimizing. So I have a feel, feeling that in Q4, we're going to bottom out 
and start coming out. And I think best in class will go from 135 down to like 115 to 118 for best in class. And I, and I think what that really means is when people understand that, when you see the IPO market coming back and best in class is adjusted, you're going to have, first of all, an Oregon public, if you look at the last two companies, you have to be cash flow break even or a cash flow break even within a quarter. So you'll have that kind of company. I think that the next IPO class, my point, is going to be a much better class, which much more efficiency. And people's brains have to be reset that I'm not going 100% at, at all costs and losing a shit ton of money. And I think because of that, you're going to see some pops. I think Clavio is probably going to pop. I think, I think there's a pent up demand there. So I'm just forecasting that these will be hot IPOs because there's a lot of money sitting on the table. I'm, I'm taking the optimistic approach and that the floodgates will start opening up in like Q2 or Q, Q3 after we understand kind of where the interest rates are at some point in time. Are they really just going to slow them down? So I'm just taking that that point, uh, you know, as well. And, I, and, I, and I'm feeling it right now, too, actually, because everyone took their budgets down in the beginning of the year. And I think things are starting to be slightly better than the, mm. than the worst case scenario, which is slightly optimistic <laughs> for my so point. So that, um, it, I'm so glad you said that because it was something I wanted to ask you because we've started to hear that a little bit too. I feel like I haven't heard it enough to be definitive about it, but a couple of our growth stage companies and then one of our multi-stage, you know, one of these established brand managers, they agree. I'm like, they think things may have bottomed in the enterprise in like May, June, July, maybe even, and that things July, August are starting to tick up, which would be great. But I think that is for the, it is still for, you know, a, a, a corner of companies. It's not yeah. like best, best, I don't think best it, in class, I don't think it changes. Class companies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't think it changes what we were talking about earlier with respect to finding soft landings and some companies really struggling at the early stage and maybe being taken out. But 2024, 2025, good years. And then 2028, <laughs> nothing's going to matter again. And growth at all costs. Margins don't matter. <laughs> and, That's my guess. And what, ep what, episode, what episode of Origins will you be on then? Episode 800? <laughs> I feel so old. <laughs> I think Beezer and I will have oh new God. and improved guests by then. Or, or sorry, sorry, not guest hosts. <laughs> the guests are great. We need to replace ourselves. <laughs> Uh, you know, we will with AI. I'll have my AI bot just answer all the questions. Just quiz it. Perfect. Perfect. Um, this was so much fun. Thank you guys for hanging with us on a Friday. Uh, really the last, fun. the last. Is it Labor Day week? Is it Labor Day week? The last four in the office. Um, ho hopefully you guys have a great weekend. Um, I'll say shout out to the last two working hard people on the uh, Friday investor landscape. So thank you for joining us. <laughs> This was fun. If you like this, you can find us on Spotify. That is our preferred publishing platform. We've got a really exciting couple episodes in the next couple months, and hopefully you join us for those. Please do. Send us your thoughts. Thanks, Beezer. Thank you. Thank you.